the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory lane to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Kyle Leone here, your host for another week, and what a week it is. So on this podcast, I've been uh, diligent trying to get my guests, and a little peek behind the curtain. I miscalculated my weeks and thought that I would be having a guest lined up and ready for for release for this week. (laughs) And unfortunately, uh, that is not the case. So today, I'm going to be talking about a movie from my past, a movie that I have a history with. Today, we're talking about 1999's The Haunting, the second of two film adaptations of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. But I didn't know any of that before jumping into my research for this movie, so I'll forgive you if you didn't. Welcome to the gory days. We're talking about The Haunting from 1999. Let's get into it. Directed by Dutch cinematographer, film producer, and of course director Jean de who's also famous for directing Speed and Twister and Speed 2 before this. The Haunting has an interesting timeline that, once again, Wikipedia was not helpful in researching. Well, at least the main page for the 1999 film The Haunting wasn't helpful. I did end up using Wikipedia and a couple of other outside sources to get this timeline together. So how did 1999's The Haunting get made? So, of course, Shirley Jackson, American horror, gothic horror writer, extraordinaire, responsible for the lottery short story um, that I had to read in class. I'm not sure if the rest of you are familiar. It's that short story where everyone's all excited because the lottery's happening in a small town, and then the winner of the lottery is a little girl, and everyone's excited. And then the twist ending, the lottery turns out to be a public stoning where they murder the winner of the lottery, and in that case, a little girl. Shirley Jackson's pretty great, and apparently there's a uh, Hulu show with Elizabeth Moss, notable Scientologist Elizabeth Moss, playing Shirley Jackson. I've heard some mixed things, um, mostly negative coming from the uh, Jackson estate. But anyway, Shirley Jackson in 1959 publishes her fifth novel, The Haunting of Hill House. Now that might sound familiar because of Netflix making their Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, I think is the uh, next anthology season of that or whatever. But yes, The Haunting of Hill House is widely praised and is praised as one of the greatest ghost stories ever told. So naturally, there are film rights for such an amazing book, and the novel was adapted into another widely praised film this time called The Haunting, directed by West Side Story director Robert Weiss. It wasn't until the early 1990s, though, that author Stephen King, who got his grubby mitts on the film rights to The Haunting, pitched a remake of the 1963 film to his buddy Steven Spielberg, and the two got a script written. But after several years of creative differences, mainly that Stephen King wanted it to be scary and cerebral, and Steven Spielberg wanted it to be more action-y, The project was shelved, and King eventually bought the film rights back for the remake, for the 1963 The Haunting, directed by Robert Weiss. But in summer of 1998, 
producers Susan Arnold and Donna Roth with Steven Spielberg put into motion the action version that Spielberg wanted with a new script by David Self with a budget of $80 million, based not on the original film. It is officially not a remake of the very successful 1963 film, but is instead a separate film adaptation based on the same Shirley Jackson novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which I found fascinating. Filming took place between November 1998 through April of 1999 on location at Harlexton Manor in England for the exteriors and on set for the interiors in a big giant dome in Long Beach, California. That's like the size of a uh, convention center hangar that they build massive sets in occasionally, some of which cost... Uh, upwards of $8 million to build. A lot of the interior shots in the movie were sets designed by, uh, well, set designer extraordinaire Eugenio Zanetti. The original cinematographer, the cameraman, left only one week into filming over creative differences. So in addition to having to swap out the cinematographer, DreamWorks thought Dubont's original ending that we will never see lacked clarity and so they ordered reshoots for a new plot thread with Lily Taylor and Catherine Zeta-Jones's characters written by Michael Tolkien. And that's why he gets a screenwriting credit. And it was originally rated R, but Dubont trimmed things so that it could be a kid's movie. Uh, not a kid's movie, but it could be a movie that kids could see. This is a horror movie with a PG-13 rating. I don't know if I've done a horror movie before with a PG-13 rating on my show before. But there's a reason that I saw this at a very young age with my mom. And Dubont would eventually move on to produce the uh, uh, Spielberg-directed Minority Report. So The Haunting finally released after a tumultuous filming experience on July 23rd, 1999. And despite being based on one of the greatest ghost stories in American history and grossing $100 million over its budget... It was panned, critically, and nominated for five Razzie Awards, which are the opposite of Oscars, if you haven't heard of them. Razzie Awards are the things that they give to the worst of the worst, which it would have won had it not been for the existence of Wild Wild West. <laughs> so if you've seen Wild Wild West, you can know that that movie saved The Haunting from winning all five of those Razzie Awards. So as I mentioned, directed by Jean Debon and based on a screenplay written by David Self with um, additions and rewrites by Michael Tolkien, the movie stars Lily Taylor, Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Owen Wilson. It's a star-studded cast for the 90s. But if you haven't seen this movie, you're going to be very confused as to who all those actors are playing. So why don't we get right into my first segment, which is what the hell just happened? Our main character is Eleanor Vance, played by Lily Taylor. We're going to be calling her Nell for this. Nell is an insomniac, and she's cared for her invalid mother for 11 years until now, because her mother's dead. Her mother dies. And how does she thank Nell for taking care of her all those years? By giving the house to Nell's sister, Jane played by Virginia Madsen, lovelessly, she's so callous, and her husband, Lou, played by Tom Irwin, who decide to sell the apartment and evict Nell. That is awful. And so, faced with homelessness, Nell gets a call to take part in an insomnia study at a secluded manor, which happens 
just in time because she was basically either going to be homeless or living as a nanny slash maid for her sister. And so she goes, and at the manor, she meets the caretakers, Mr. and Mrs. Dudley, who are super weird, uh, played by Bruce Dern and Marion Seldes, respectively. Two other participants, Theo, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's short for Theodora, but come on, it's 2020. If 1999 it wasn't weird enough, then it shouldn't be weird now. And Luke, played by Owen Wilson, which is kind of funny because, you know, his brother's Luke Wilson. Anyway, Dr. David Morrow played by Liam Neeson, arrives with two more research assistants, and he explains that the clinical insomnia study is supposed to be, they're supposed to hang out in this mansion and take these tests and stuff, and he's going to be uh, studying their insomnia and how they're dealing with it. Of course, the truth is that this study is to see the psychological effects of people under immense terror and stress. He plans to terrify these people for in the name of science so that he can write a book i guess about it i'll be getting into the nonsense of this story uh in a bit so he explains the clinical insomnia study and then follows it up with a ghost story about the owner of the house and so here's the story a 19th century textile tycoon named hugh crane yeah built this house for his wife to fill with children his wife, Renee, killed herself before the house was finished, and Crane became a recluse, constantly adding onto the house. After one of the research assistants gets whipped in the eye by a harpsichord, the two uh, research assistants exit the movie while Nell sees statues move and doors bang and tiny bloody footsteps lead her to secret passages, and she just loves it for some reason. She loves the attention. It's, it's really silly. Until a giant bloody... Welcome Home Eleanor, written up on the portrait of the owner of the house, leads everyone to accuse Nell of doing it and of being an attention seeker. Eventually, we learn the truth. The insomnia study is, like I said, actually studying human psychological response to fear. But none of that really matters because Nell learns that Hugh Crane, the owner of the house, used child labor in his textile mills, took the orphans the orphans that he employed, to his home, tortured and killed them, and then burned their bodies in the fireplace. And now the ghosts of those orphan children are trapped in the house with him. And Nell has to stop him and save the children because she's descended from Hugh Crane's secret second wife, Carolyn. That was a lot to unpack. I tried to write that as succinctly as I could, but God, it makes no sense. Anyway, Luke gets decapitated in the fireplace, and Nell confronts a big giant ghost Hugh Crane in front of the big bronze door to hell, and that suddenly means something. She declares she's not afraid of Crane, and then the door gets him. But Nell dies as Crane is beaten, and the children are free as she joins them in the door in heaven. Uh, the next day, the Dudleys arrive and mock Dr. Marrow and Theo for being city folk. And that's the end. That's the haunting. <laughs> I saw this movie. I'm trying to remember when I first saw this movie. It came out in 1999. I know I owned it on Blu-ray. I definitely didn't see it in theaters. But I have, I have extended memories of watching this with my mom, like, over and over again. And I remember 
this movie, The Haunting, being like an early uh, emblem that I wore saying like, oh, yeah, I like scary movies. I saw The Haunting. When the reality is, I'm pretty sure I had seen The Fly before this. I'd seen some other like genuinely scary and better R-rated films, uh, R-rated horror movies. But this one stands out in my head as the one that like, oh yeah, we got it on DVD, and like I I knew the movie and I loved the movie. <laughs> and let me tell you, life is about growing and changing. And I've learned that uh, what I once thought was a great horror movie has uh, revealed itself to be a not-so-great horror movie based on one of the greatest horror stories ever. So why don't we just get uh, right into my questions uh, in the next segment, which is Mystery LLC. So, of course, the question I usually like to ask my guests, but I'll ask myself this today, is, what happens next? So Dr. Morrow and Theo are outside on the lawn of the mansion that is pretty messed up. There's lots of broken windows inside. There's a room that's like half caved in on itself. There's the staircase in the like uh, greenhouse that's completely demolished. If nothing else, they're going to have to pay a, a, a pretty big deposit to fix all of the things that they destroyed. But Let's get that out of the way. Dr. Morrow is going to jail. Theo is in therapy for the rest of her life. Yeah, and Dr. Morrow rots in prison for the negligent murder or uh, at least, um, what would you call it, uh, manslaughter of these two patients in a wildly irresponsible study. We really only get one moment of it and, and from this guy named Malcolm as the voice of reason, but... What was Dr. Morrow's plan? What the hell was he expecting to get out of this study? It's so unethical. There's no control. And the subjects are all insomniacs. So it's biased from the start. I understand, like, oh, you don't tell the rats that they're in a cage, that they're in a maze. You don't speak rat. There's no opportunity to communicate to the rats that they're in the cage. So you're not justifying a blind study. What you're trying to justify is torturing some insomniacs for a book. It doesn't hold any water for any second. And it's so funny how they fade away from that argument. Like, wait, yeah, Malcolm's making a really good point. But then they give Liam Neeson some, like, floaty, artsy, sciencey dialogue about how it's like, oh, but uh, fear. I, I, I want to understand why. Why people feel the way they feel. Why they think the way they think. And uh, why fear still exists in us. But... I have no idea how he was going to answer any of those questions by putting four people in a scary house and then rattling the doors. <laughs> and then when they come to tell you, I heard the doors rattling, you tell them, no, you're crazy. <laughs> I didn't hear anything. Just go back to sleep. What kind of study is that? <laughs> so our next question is, why did Nell have to die? It's a real shame that Nell dies at the end. Let's just look at it. Just look at the fact she put her whole life on hold to take care of her mother for those 11 years and her reward for doing all of that is to spend her last days of like quote-unquote freedom her mother's dead and she doesn't have to worry about that anymore she spends these last days of freedom cleaning up another family member's mistake yet another family member in this case uh i guess she's cleaning up the mistake that carolyn Made by not stopping Hugh Crane when she was alive? God, that feel, that kind of sucks. Why is that on Nell now? She's not related. Anyway, I'm. <laughs> that's uh, one of my next questions. It's just a shame because she 
cleans up another family's mistake and then is rewarded with death. She dies. So first time she's rewarded for taking care of an old family member, she gets to clean up. She gets to basically do it again as her reward. And then her reward for doing that is to die. I don't know why. Why did Nell have to die is my next question. Anyway. So why did the ghost children wait to contact Nell until after she wasn't busy anymore taking care of her mother? It just seems like a a pretty great coincidence for all parties for the psych study to be taking place at the exact same mansion within two months of her mother dying. Why didn't the ghost children contact Nell during the 11 years that she was taking care of her mom? Because they knew that she'd be too busy to come help them? Or were they waiting for a plausible reason for her to come? I don't know. That that question, I, I, I don't want to call it a plot hole, but it does seem like a weird coincidence. Why? How did the ghosts know that they were going to be having the psych study because it seems like on the call the ghosts tell her like to look in the phone book for that psych study and then she finds it. So why couldn't Nell just have related to Renee, the first wife? Is the surprise, quote unquote, of Nell being related to the owners of the house so worth so worth it, the, the, the shock that they have to hide a second wife so there's the big reveal? Couldn't it just... Couldn't it have just been easier if she was related to Renee and then Renee, for whatever reason, I guess, I guess the whole reason that Hugh Crane starts abducting the orphans from his textile mill is because he didn't have children of his own. And so Renee would have had, Renee has to die for him to go insane. And then, so then why does Carolyn show up at all? Hugh Crane had a pretty sweet gig going where he ran a textile mill, scooped up the orphans, tortured, killed them, and then burned their bodies and got away with it scot-free. He was doing that for who knows how long. And then for no reason other than maybe loneliness or lust, who knows, scoops up another wife who inevitably learns what he's doing, tries to stop him, failed, and is killed for it. And I guess because she wanted to stop him? I don't know. I wonder how much of this is lifted from the... Uh, original source material, Shirley Jackson's novel, but she isn't even related to the ghost children. They're orphans. They're all orphans. So it's just, it, it seems weird for, for the relation, for her to be a great granddaughter to Carolyn. So that, yeah, it's confusing, but it's also like, why it, it leads into my next question. Why does the yellow door room look exactly like Nell's mother's bedroom back at the apartment at the beginning of the movie? I, I feel like there's no satisfying explanation for it. I always assumed that Nell set up that bedroom for her mom. But but, but the ending kind of is like to reveal that, oh, that's just a way that their bedrooms have been made for like throughout the generations. Every matriarch in this family has had a has been invalid and then had a room that looks exactly the same. I don't understand why it looks the same at the end. And I also don't understand why the small yellow door room smells so bad. Like at the the first time Nell tries to open it, she's like, oh, what's that smell? But we never learn what that smell is. I kept assuming that there was going to be a dead body or something in there. I don't know. 
And then this is this is just a thought about what's with the flip book of Carolyn pointing to the fireplace. I know it's supposed to be spooky, but it just it rips me out of it because it I, there's no like cut back to Nell to see like, oh, whoa, what did I just see? It just cuts from the flip book of Carolyn pointing to the fireplace to the scene of Nell walking to the fireplace. So it just it it is jarring. It was a bad decision to keep it in. So. Let's move into my next segment where I talk about all the themes in this movie called Screaming Themies. This isn't so much of a theme, but have you heard of the Winchester Mystery House? I mean, Winchester might sound familiar because of the rifles, but um, the Winchester Mystery House is a is alluded to in the sense that, you know, we're told that this is a mansion that was added on for years and years because of a rich person gone mad, which would imply impossible hallways and stairways to nowhere and fake doors, but most of the house we see is pretty manor-like, except for the weird, <laughs> like, mirror carousel room and uh, the secret passage. But the Winchester Mystery House is that, to my understanding. I still haven't gone. I live in California. I live in Southern California. I even lived in Northern California for a couple of years, and I still haven't seen the Winchester Mystery House. But as I understand it, yes, it was um, a the wife of the Winchester man uh, who, you know, ostensibly went mad and kept building onto her house forever and ever and ever. And I think the story is that she thought there were spirits there. So by adding onto the house forever, the spirits would get lost in the home. And by making fake things like that, I don't know. I wish I had gone and could speak more to it. But I never really, you know, get the sense that this is truly like a, 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 a impossible house like that. It's, it's really just a throwaway line at the beginning. So, Really, my first theme is uh, family, obviously the biggest one. We see the symbol for this theme in the necklace that Nell is wearing that belonged to her mother. And then we see on Carolyn later in her little portrait. And so Nell takes care of her mother. In addition to romantic love, there's the familial love. And Nell, it seems, either by her own decision or else, uh, is a caretaker. That's that's how she fills the, the role that's been given to her in her family unit. And so she takes care of her mother. And now she takes care of her family of ghost children. And by the end of the movie, she's going to be taking care of them forever in eternity in heaven? Or has she gotten her true reward from taking care of her entire family, her entire life, that now maybe she doesn't have to take care of anyone anymore? But um, the the theme of family goes all the way through from Nell to Hugh Crane, who wanted a big family and basically went mad when his wife couldn't produce a big family and killed herself. And so Hugh and his I think they call them eternal family, quote unquote, of child orphans that he had around his house. He would torture and kill. And the subsequent family or eternal family, once again, of their trapped ghosts. So I, I feel like there's an argument from, you know, Hugh Crane's perspective to say that, well, he just wants the family like Nell, like everyone else. He just wants a big family. I don't think he necessarily thinks he's the bad guy in this situation. All he wants is a big, giant family to torture and abuse and kill. <laughs> Again, kind of um, a, like half theme of romance. It's there, but to no real effect. But there's there's a sexy spark between Nell and Theo throughout the movie. And I I would be impressed 
with the film if it wasn't so like terrified of itself to to talk about that. Every time like we get two steps into the lesbian romance between Nell and Theo, it the movie catapults itself back out because this is a product of the late 90s and it is a, you know, blockbuster pick. The only reason anyone would want to see lesbians back then, unfortunately, is for them to get naked. And they don't, so it makes sense that nothing really happens. I, I don't want them to get naked. I didn't want that to happen. I just thought it would have been cool if, you know, there's one tiny little thing where uh, Theo invites Nell to come move in with her, but it just would have been nice. Was the L word? Yeah, the L word was definitely on at the show at the time of this movie. The L word and Queer as Folk. You know, it was just, it was a different time. So obviously there's the ongoing theme of haunted house where we're first led to presume that the hauntings are manufactured by Dr. Morrow for his uh, secret blind study, but it becomes increasingly obvious that the ghosts are very real and to blame. Once we see the chocolate babies move, <laughs> that's something my mom and I used to say all the time. I think we still might say it sometimes. Uh, those wooden cherubs carved into the beds and stuff, then they move all the time until they move a lot, and then it's awful. We would call them chocolate babies because that's how they looked. And so when the chocolate babies turn and when the ghosts start showing up in her pillow and in her curtains and stuff, that's that's where it's obvious to us that, no, 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 the house is haunted. And so with a haunted house theme comes this uh, idea of being trapped with spirits, with unfinished business. And in this case, it's the children wanting to be free and Hugh Crane wanting to avoid hell, I guess, is their unfinished business. But there's also, you know, they're literally trapped and unable to leave the manor every night. When the Dudleys leave, they lock up and uh, only some of the phones get service. And yeah, it's very much like um, a, a box that they're in for a long time. Which leads to, you know, fear, trauma, and psychosis. Nothing like lying to your insomniac test subjects about the reality that you're studying their reactions to stress and fear as they try to sleep in a big spooky mansion. <laughs> so the last thing I want to touch on is a theme of heaven, hell, and purgatory. So we see the big bronze door to hell or to heaven or whatever it is. Um, and Theo says that it's a, it's a reference to a piece of art. I don't recognize it, but it says... Some, it says, like, all ye who stand here be judged, something like that. And so Nell says she's been in purgatory for the last 11 years and smiles. And it's such a weird line delivery. I have to wonder if this was one of the reshoots that DreamWorks put on the director and, and these poor actors. It's so weird how she says, it's purgatory. I should know. I was there once for 11 years. Ha 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 ha. She's talking about when she was taking care of her mom, but it's such a weird delivery. She's out of one purgatory and into another purgatory in the manor here. And the ghost children are also trapped in a purgatory with the ghost of Hugh Crane waiting for Nell to release them so they can all go up to heaven. There isn't much, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Hugh Crane goes to hell, um, but there isn't really much in the way of uh, heaven and hell imagery. It's mostly that everyone in the movie is trapped in a purgatory of their own. All right, I got to rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. I liked The Haunting because it has a long history in my mind. I've watched it at a young age. I watched it with my mom a lot. We have a lot of inside jokes about it. But as a movie, this movie sucks. <laughs> like, it's slow. 
The story makes no sense. The CGI is fun, especially at a time when it was pretty new and experimental. It's way overdone by the end of it. But I want to give a special shout out to visual effects supervisor Phil Tippett, who was instrumental in like orchestrating the gradual escalation of the supernatural manifestations. Like that pacing of how we see the creepiness Minus the ghosts and minus Lily Taylor's performance. I can't blame her. It has to be Jean Devon, the director, telling her, smile weirdly. <laughs> smile in a way that the audience can't tell why you're happy kind of direction. But um, the the escalation of the supernatural stuff culminating once again in, you know, like the CGI griffins and the giant Hugh Crane ghost that we get a extreme close-up on his eye for some reason. Ignoring all of that, Phil Tippett, the visual effects supervisor, I want to give a big shout out to. And the beautiful sets that I described, designed by Eugenio Zanetti. Fantastic. I forgot to mention also that uh, Jerry Goldsmith, the great Jerry Goldsmith, did the music for this. It's so funny when people when people from like, God, these great composers or these great producers or directors turn up in these I mean, it makes sense. Look at some of the big names here. We've got Lily Taylor, Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Owen Wilson. They were all on top of the world. Some of them still are. Some of them are not anymore. I'm going to give The Haunting two thumbs. And I'm going to give one of those thumbs to Eugenio Zanetti, the set designer, because, my God, if nothing else, the bedrooms and the stairways, the greenhouse, even the kitchen, like, it all feels so purposeful. It's... It's great. I got to give uh, one thumb to Eugenio Zanetti. And, and I got to give one to Lily Taylor, our main character carrying this whole thing. Because even though it's a two-thumb movie, Lily Taylor does a really good job establishing herself as the main character. I am interested in what she's feeling. Even if I'm confused by it, I am interested and I want to know. And I like that she, she has that one moment where she says, like, I can either be a volunteer, I can either be a victim or a volunteer. And honestly, that's been ringing in my head the last couple of days of I can either be a victim or a volunteer. I can either rage against the things that the universe is throwing against me and, you know, cry, woe is me that I'm a victim. Or I can be a willing participant in whatever the universe has in store. And it's just that like reframing of expectations that's uh, stuck with me. So Lily Taylor did a fantastic job with the, uh, with her character of Nell Vance. I believed every second of it, of course. So she gets a thumb. And that's it. That's The Haunting from 1999 here on The Gory Days. Thanks for listening once again. If you're not already, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Gory Days. And don't forget to check out my Patreon. Until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days.